Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Ask Abhijit Show. It's been a long time. I hope you're all doing very well. And I'm so glad to be back live on this uh, long-standing podcast of mine. I hope you're all doing great. So uh, uh, before we get into any questions, as always, uh, let me see who all is live on the live chat. And let me greet you all. I can see Avnish, uh, um, Arya Bhattacharya, Himanshu, Sharma, Anup, Dev, Monish, Monish. Shivansh, Garvit Singh, Chauhan, Ojas, Shushrut, Dibyanshu, Avnish again, Apratihat, Priyanshi Sood, hello, Hitesh, Gaurav Thandran 85, Hajmola Singh, Aditya, Ravi Kumar, Abhijit Reddy, Jasman Raj Singh, Komal, Pratyush, Jatin, GK, Geopolitical Dubey, hello sir, um, ma'am, <laughs> Manmatiwari, Dev, Aman Vakil, Sabana, hello, Barno, Ritvik, Shri Krishna, Shivam Singh, Sagar, hello, Bimla, Karthik, Dr. Jayashankar, Supremacy, hello, Feminist Impaler, Ritik Kuthari, Joyal, Yungi Manar, Namaste, Nomadroni, Lol, No, Om Berikar, hi, Om Bekherikar, uh, Jitendra, Dr. Atul Karan Nalavad Jashridam, Shriya Jain, hello, the Indic gal, yes, back after a long time, Samar, Pawan, Anirudh, Uncle Sam, Vivek, Mansi, 9pm, <laughs> Surinder, Otaku Reference, Pratyush, Hajmola Singh again, Samarth Gandhi, Namaste, Monish Sabarinath, hello, Jahind, uh, who else do we have, Uncle Biden, 420, Karan Nalavad, hello, uh, I can see some Somalia Paul, Surendra Gupta, Ajit Avnish, Gopi Sunny Show, Jai, Jairaj Saraf, The Beyonder, Doga, Shriya, TTG, Sahil, Act Dimensions, Kashyap, Namaste, Anshuman, Bahuguna, Shrikant, Sunny, and so many other people, Sid, Dave, uh, <laughs> Kumal, uh, Amir Gardia, Chess Shastra, Frank Acosta, Bhavik Vadera, Joseph Matthew, hi, after a long time, yes, indeed. <laughs> Uday Kumar, good evening. And everybody else. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to stop uh, greeting you all. It's been, I think, more than three minutes I've been greeting you all. So let's stop there. As always, uh, you all have asked lots and lots and lots of questions. Aditya Ji, thank you very much. Nice to have you online. Hello. Uh, yes, yes. Not missing, just working. And yeah. So, uh, uh, let's see what questions we have. You all have asked lots of questions as as always. Let me see what do we have. Um, uh, but what we can do is uh, there are lots of people online as well. So why don't we start with some online questions, right? And in case there is some noise in the background, please excuse me for that. Uh, this is the festive season and, and here in India, people like to blast music on full full volume. So in case you're hearing some noise in the background, I would apologize. I hope it's not that audible. But yeah. So uh, let us take some questions. Let us take, let us take some questions and uh, see what we have. Uh, and let's, let's talk about, first of all, let me put some music in the background. Never tried that before, but let me see. Let me, let me put some music in the background so that the in case you're hearing any noise, it, it will be drowned out. There we go. Uh, and in case it's too loud, let me know and I will <laughs> I will try and fix it. Okay, so Akshat is saying it's not audible. That's great. That's great. Okay, that's fantastic. Um, okay, let us see. 
um what what questions do we have okay <laughs> so it says views on world cup i think india is doing well in the world cup yes uh, uh i think india is, is i think india is doing reasonably well i think india has won all of its matches and it's interesting that uh, in certain indian stadiums there is support for certain teams i mean uh, i have not really followed the pakistan matches yes i saw I saw yesterday the South Africa defeated Pakistan. I was like, I saw the last five minutes or so, and uh, and uh, it's interesting that in certain stadiums there is a certain amount of support for teams like Pakistan and Bangladesh in India, which I find surprising. I mean, it's it's fine to support other teams as well when your team is not playing, but for Indians to support Pakistan or to to wear Pakistan T-shirts or whatever, it's it's. I, th- I think it's not quite right. So, yeah, I found that surprising. I found that surprising. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So everyone's saying there's no music. There's no noise in the background, which is great. All right. F- fantastic. Um, Samarth Acharya says, why is Sub-Saharan Africa always in crisis? I think we should see the map for that so that we understand what, what we mean by Sub-Saharan Africa. Let me uh, quickly put a map on the screen. Give me a second or so. As always, the map is our best friend. And if we see the map, we understand context. So let us bring the map on the screen. Let us, yeah. So what is Sub-Saharan Africa? And why is this place always in crisis? Let's close this. Yeah. The Sub-Saharan Africa is, is essentially this entire belt above the green area. Okay. You can see the green area, which uh, you can see Nigeria here, right? Nigeria, it's kind of green. So above the green area, you have this region called Sub-Saharan Africa. It's it's also called the Sahel, the Sahel region of Africa. And, uh, you know, it's called the coup belt in Africa. It's always a place where you have coups, lots of coups. I mean, if you go to, uh, I don't know, whatever online resource you have and see the list of coups in the past 10, 20 years, you're going to see a whole list of coups in, in these nations, right? A uh, very unstable region. You have dictatorships, dictatorships that are that are uh, propped up in these nations, uh, and these are propped up by the West, either by France or or certain other nations, right? And uh, recently, Niger has been in the news because there's been a coup there, a popular coup, a coup that's supported by the population, and they've uh, got rid of the French ambassador and the French military from the nation. Niger obviously is a nation that is, uh, like I've spoken on many occasions, it's uh, rich in uh, uranium. It's one of the top 10 uranium producers in the world, and it's one of the major suppliers of uranium to France. I mean, the French were getting uranium from Niger at less than a dollar a kilo. Yeah, when the actual uh, <laughs> market price is around 150 to $200. So that's how they were stealing uranium from Niger. And now that's kind of come to an end. So why is Sub-Saharan Africa always in crisis? It's like, why is the Middle East always in crisis? It's always an external hand. Okay, so one thing about Africa that you will notice in this region is that you have so many straight line boundaries, you know, international borders that have straight lines. So these are borders that were arbitrarily drawn by the West, by the Europeans in the 19th century and then the 20th century also, arbitrarily to divide up Africa among themselves. So what these straight line borders do is that they, they cut across, you know, uh, tribal boundaries and ethnic boundaries. So half of you of a tribe or a half of an ethnic group is, is found in one one on one side of the border and another on the other side of the border these are unnatural 
non organic borders and because of this you have you know ethnic groups that typically did not live together who are forced to live together somehow in one nation so that causes civil wars and that's by design so when you have uh, these nations that are embroiled in civil wars and ethnic strife and what not then you can install dictators and you can you know have foreign interference in the nation in the name of uh, you know bringing stability and human rights and all democracy and all that and uh, yeah it's all about resources at the end, at the end, of, the, end of the day africa is extremely uh, rich in various kinds of resources natural resources mineral resources gold uranium copper what not you, you can you can think of it all and it's all there and so so the west what it does is is it keeps these regions these nations in a constant state of crisis so that it can then interfere in the nations put their own puppet dictators in place or have un or whatever other group that comes and meddles in the internal matters of the nation and by doing all this they are able to extract natural natural resources out of the out of these uh, these countries uh, the french have uh, what they call the cfa franc which comes in two flavors so it's the currency that the french government issues and it is used by a large number of nations in this region right and that is one way of controlling the economies of the, of these nations uh, and this uh, the cfa franc has a, a, a you know a straight uh, conversion rate with the euro which the french decide uh, the 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 you know the finances the the exchequer of these many of these nations uh, they they all the money is deposited in uh, french banks so that's how you have this state of neo colonialism neo colonization that still exists in africa in in the in this region sub saharan africa and other parts of africa as well but sub saharan africa is where you have french who have a very strong uh, stronghold or stranglehold in this region and nowadays it's become you know uh, the place where uh, you you are seeing new manifestations of the new cold war in this region because the russians have got involved the chinese have been involved for the past 10 20 years so a lot going on so just like the middle east it's an artificial uh, crisis that's been induced and and kept going on in perpetuity for decade and decade and decades right and in both cases it's the west that is responsible for that so that is a, a brief overview of of how things are in this region so yeah good question now let's uh, see something else um okay nitish says what's the status of tibet now where is tibet let's let's take a look at tibet where is tibet in case some of us don't know let me uh, put that on the screen where is tibet okay let's make it a little larger tibet is this region north of india it was historical historically called bhutadesh bhut Uh, I don't know why it's called Tibet. The Westerners have decided to mangle all e- Eastern names. Yeah, so so it's called uh, uh, Tibet. So what's the status? It's under Chinese occupation, right? That's the status of Tibet. Uh, the Tibetans have become a minority in their own land. You have the Chinese Communist Party flag that flies over Lhasa over the Potala Palace. Uh, the Tibetans. Uh, uh, they are slowly being uh, you know their culture is being wiped out their language is being wiped out their children are forced to uh, to do their schooling in in chinese in the chinese mandarin language so so yeah that's that's what's happening that's the status of tibet right now tibet uh, historically has been a, na- a nation that's been a buffer between india between two great civilizations india and china 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 has historically never had any right any claim whatsoever on tibet but right now they have claimed it because because uh, of of the uh, 
decisions taken by the Nehruvian government in the 1950s to a large extent. They allowed this to happen. So that's the status of Tibet right now. Tibet is a nation under occupation and it's being slowly uh, squeezed to death, essentially. Yes, that's what. Sagar says, Les Français sont riches grâce à l'Afrique. That is true. It is very true. The French are prosperous because of Africa, because of the uh, wealth and resources they extract out of Africa. Um, uh, okay, what else do we have? Um, okay, Kashyap. Kashyap says, what are your views on India's no vote, ab abstention in the recent uh, Hamas conflict? There was a vote yesterday or day before yesterday in the UN about some resolution and India abstained in this. US said don't stop. I don't care what the US says. What did India do? India abstained. So I think it was uh, something about condemning Israel or something or the other and India stayed out of it. So I think, see, look, uh, what's happening in the Middle East, In in it, it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, clearly Hamas started it. Okay. I don't care what anyone says. If it upsets people, so be it. It was started by Hamas. And uh, uh, with their act of horrific terrorism that they perpetrated on the on the on the people of Israel, and then Israel has retaliated. Maybe they have retaliated excessively or not. You know, in in these things, in geopolitics, in in, in warfare, there is no right, there is no wrong. It's only about uh, who can prevail. Uh, so India has, I think, wisely stayed out of this. Uh, as soon as this act of terrorism by Hamas happened, the Prime Minister of India was very clear. He went on Twitter and said that we, that he called this an act of terrorism, right? And we, we, he clearly said that India stands with Israel. So I think that's overall India's official stand. Historically, India has had kind of uh, uh, some kind of sympathy towards the uh, aspirations and all that of the Palestinian people. But, uh, you know, you can't resort to terrorism. So that's what's happened. And I think India is doing a wise thing by staying out of this conflict, not picking one side or the, or the other. We don't have a horse in this race. We don't have a dog in this fight, uh, with all due respect to both sides. So I think, uh, yeah, India India is, is, is uh, doing the right thing by not taking sides and staying out of it. But obviously, India will always unequivocally condemn any act of terrorism, no matter who does it. And what Hamas did was an act of horrific terrorism. And India clearly stood with Israel uh, over that. Okay. <clears throat> Om Bekerikar raises an important question. What can India do to free eight Navy veterans from Qatar? So what's the deal with Qatar? Okay, lots of people are very upset with good reason. So first of all, where is Qatar? Let's take a look at Qatar. We have to always use the map to orient ourselves. We know where India is. Now, let's uh, look in India's extended neighborhood. Okay, go westwards. You have the Gulf of... You have the Sea of Saurashtra, which is erroneously called the Arabian Sea. Then you have what they call the Gulf of Oman. And then you have the Persian Gulf. In the Persian Gulf, uh, Persian Gulf over here, west, northwest of the UAE, we have Qatar, this nation, this little nation over here. Okay. So this tiny little nation that is smaller than Sri Lanka uh, has, uh, has uh, first of all, they've been holding these eight uh, Indian Navy veterans in prison for over a year. And this week, it's been announced that uh, it has been announced that uh, they have sentenced these eight Indian Navy veterans to death. And apparently, the charge is that they the charge is that they have accused them of spying on behalf of Israel. Okay, that's the thing. So uh, 
yeah so that is the situation that we find ourselves in now lots of indians are angry because qatar is this tiny little nation smaller than sri lanka and it is it is you know taking such actions against an enormous large nation like india and people are saying that the modi government has failed and they are able to do nothing in even if a small tiny nation does this we are able to do nothing we have to understand the big picture perspective over here what is the significance of qatar in world affairs right uh, what, what 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 is uh, qatar standing in the world so first of all you may remember the 2022 world cup football world cup took place in this nation qatar so this tiny apparently insignificant nation which is actually a nation which a very hot climate not suitable for, for for football was able to win you know the rights to host the world cup 2022 so understand that when it comes to events like big global events like the olympics the football world cup and so on and so forth when a nation is awarded this it's it's essentially kind of uh, uh you could say a reward for certain services that this nation has offered to the big powers to the great powers and when it comes to the so called rules based world order and all that the great power is the us and we also have to remember that qatar is a nation that hosts the us military on its territory okay there is at least one us uh, military base on qatar territory qatar is also the nation that has ho- hosted the 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 diplomatic talks between the united states and the taliban regime before afghanistan was handed over back to the taliban okay so qatar has was part of that qatar was the place where all of this happens happened uh, qatar is uh, so so qatar has and and if you look at the past 20 30 years of history qatar has always participated um, in in various us uh, military operations whether it is the first gulf war the second gulf war you know the us invasions of e- iraq which happened uh, in the 90s and the and 2003 if i'm not mistaken qatar has participated in that so qatar essentially is a nation that has historically provided a great amount of service to the united states you can think of it as a us vassal state as one of the united states key vassal states and qatar is is one of the major exporters of global exporters of of liquefied natural gas lng um, india i think receives about half of its lng from qatar okay and india has a significant expatriate population in qatar i don't know how many lakhs maybe 4 5 lakhs i don't remember the exact figures go and look it up okay so so qatar even though it is a tiny apparently insignificant nation okay it 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 has the full backing so to say of the united states of america and when you have the backing of a of, of a superpower then you can afford to do certain things so then the question is why did qatar do this i mean clearly this is uh, see first, first of all qatar is not a nation that executes people routinely okay it's very rare for them to execute anybody uh, so they have uh, you know imposed a death penalty on on eight indian naval veterans this is a pressure tactic of some kind on india and who where is the pressure coming from it's clearly not coming from qatar qatar is a, is a, is a tiny nation um it's 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 merely a pawn on the larger geopolitical chessboard and who is holding that pawn is the question it most likely is the us okay so india in recent times has uh, scored a number of victories the g20 was a big win for india india obviously is rising economically the us needs india as as a counterweight to china but the but the united states is also quite wary of india 
Okay, India is a nation that is it's the only major nation, it's the only major economy that has zero chance of recession, which means India is going to keep growing steadily at a good at a good percentage, at a good uh, rate for the next 10, 20 years. Okay, and if India keeps on growing, it's uh, seven, eight, nine percent, maybe even five, six percent per year for the next 20 years, India is going to become a genuinely major economy. And, and a genuinely great world power, okay? So the US doesn't want to repeat the mistake it did with China. It sees India as a long-term threat on the long-term horizon. By, by 2040, India could be the next uh, future China. You know, that's what they worry about. So they would like to keep India down. So they will they will cooperate with India and collaborate with India when it comes to various things that uh, involve uh, countering China. Because India also needs a counterweight. To, uh, India also needs, you know, uh, uh, any support it gets against China. So when it comes to things like the Quad, various Indo-Pacific initiatives and so on, the US will cooperate with India. But in, the US will also oppose India and hamper India and hinder India's growth in a number of ways. So that's the kind of um, dual game or, or complex game they are playing when it comes to India. Okay. Uh, so... When this sort of thing happens, when a tiny insignificant nation has the temerity to impose the death penalty on eight Indian naval veterans, what happens? The people of India, we know, are very emotional. They'll say, oh, it's a failure of the Modi government. Modi is weak, blah, blah, blah. What foreign policy, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So, so that's the objective. It's to make this government look weak. Why? Because we have 2024 coming up. And India needs a continue, political continuity. India needs political stability. If you have a coalition government that comes up, then it's going to be a disaster for India because India will not be able to pursue a strong, robust foreign policy and a strong, robust economic policy. So they would love, the Americans and the Chinese as well, would love to see a weak government come to power in 2024 in India. So how do you make this happen? You take a number of actions that make the current government look weak. And you do things that are out of the control of the Indian government. So you take some random people in Qatar who are working in some company in Qatar, you imprison them. After one year, you impose a death penalty. And then it makes the government of India look weak. Well, you know what? As India rises, this is going to be, this is going to happen more and more. Okay, there's going to be pushback from people, from, from forces that do not, do not want to see India rise. And India has an enormous diaspora, millions of Indians who live and work all across the world. It's going to be so easy to target Indians, okay, outside of India. So they won't do it most likely in the West because the West believes in the rule of law, blah, blah, blah. But they will use this rogue state, the rogue actors like Qatar and God knows what to, to keep on pressurizing India. So this is the price that you pay when you start rising, okay? So India needs to have the appetite to, 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 to be able to, you know, withstand all this. Instead of getting all emotional and wishy-washy and, and weepy, weepy, oh, this happened, that happened, come on, grow up. This is what happens. So eventually, India will have to take certain actions. So for example, when the West imprisons a Chinese, uh, let's say, you know, a high-ranking Chinese official of some, of some Chinese company, what the Chinese do is that they will imprison two, three Western business people in China on trumped-up charges, okay? So, uh, so obviously... Uh, that's something we can't do when it comes to Qatar because it's such a tiny nation. We we may have maybe 12 Qataris on Indian territory or whatever, right? So uh, India will have to come up with uh, ways of dealing with this. But I would not say that this is a, a failure of the government. I mean, any rogue nation can imprison 12 Indians somewhere and India cannot start invading every nation, right? 
every nation has its own laws and all that and india also if you look at indian prisons we have uh, citizens of other nations in our prisons so this is something that uh, is going to happen i would i would imagine it will happen more and more as india starts rising india keeps rising and the world gets really prickly and jealous about this they're going to try and pull these pull pull these stunts you know to make the indian government look weak so this is something that india will have to learn how to deal with so that's where we are what can india do to free these eight people from qatar right now we can um, you know i'm sure we will ask them to follow the rule of law we can uh, engage them diplomatically try and put pressure in some way or the other um, so i'm sure there are various uh, diplomatic means uh, various means uh, that we have at our disposal diplomatic means and maybe some other means as well i would not say we have to go take military action for 12 for 12 people um but yeah we will have to find some way of dealing with this okay right a good question harsh says qatar has been providing monthly aid to hamas how does this benefit qatar and all this so yeah the hamas leadership is based in qatar okay which which tells you qatar is an important proxy for various uh, maybe <coughs> excuse me for the us perhaps or for somebody else so so the middle east is constantly in turmoil the hamas leadership is living in qatar the top leadership they're living in luxury while you know what's happening in gaza people are being bombed by the israelis and the leadership lives in gaza uh, how does this benefit qatar well you see like i said the middle east is constantly in crisis just like western africa the sahel region is constantly in crisis and all of this crisis is engineered from outside of these regions it's the west it's the it's the west that wants these regions to be always in crisis so that they can uh, extract geopolitical benefits out of it so when you have so let's say the us wants the middle east to be constantly in crisis so they need a good guy they need a bad guy for them the official good guy is israel and the official bad guy is hamas and hezbollah and iran and so on and so forth now see hamas it is based in the gaza strip which has a 50 roughly 50 km border with israel if the top hamas leadership were to live in gaza it would be very easy for the israelis to take them out you know because the israelis are known to target you know and assassinate to do targeted uh, targeted assassinations of anti israel forces the best way to to prevent that from happening is to ensconce the top leadership of hamas in qatar where they they are kind of out of reach of israel and since qatar is a small territory it, there is a good security there and, and and everything can be monitored properly so yeah so i would say that you know the us has a history there's a very long history of playing both sides i mean they one they are the ones who created osama bin laden they are the ones who created saddam hussein okay let's not even talk about al qaeda and the black flags and 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 isis let's not even go there so the americans have a long history of playing both sides when it suits them terrorists will become freedom fighters and resistance fighters and and moderates and when it doesn't suit them they they have to be smoked out and 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 uh, you know dealt with uh so i i i think it, it would it is not beyond the us to even ensure that the hamas top leadership stays in safety in qatar while keeping the entire middle east region up in flames so that's what i would say you know all right <laughs> um 
after this israel hamas conflict is over will we see changed international map boundaries with no disputed territories remaining anymore there you will never ever have settled international boundaries you will never ever have uh, all territorial disputes anywhere settled okay it's it's never ever going to happen if you look at the past 2000 years of history this which is a small sliver of overall history you will find that international boundaries and borders always constantly change they don't change on a week to week basis but they change on a decade to decade basis if you look at the borders over a century just a century not even 2000 years you will see changes whether it is india whether it is afghanistan whether it's the middle east whether it is central asia whether it is north and south america whether it is the us mexico border whatever it always keeps changing so whenever this israel hamas conflict is over you will most likely see some changes most likely in in some of these borders because it is a quite it is a distinct possibility if uh, the great powers are not careful that this conflict which is currently waging between israel and hamas and maybe israel and hezbollah it may suddenly expand beyond this territory okay because uh, there is going to be a significant temptation among the islamic world to take action against israel especially if uh, if the people of gaza suffer too much okay and there is this you know the islamic world is not a unified monolithic block they have lots of frictions they have lots of divisions they have lots of rivalries they have lots of conflict conflicts among themselves okay look at the history since 1950 you will see that they fight each other all the time so three of the so there is uh, you know there is this uh, this this competition right now and it's always been there there is this competition for the leadership of the islamic world who will take up the leadership and who will proclaim themselves the leaders of the islamic world so who are the candidates one is obviously iran the regime of the ayatollahs they would like to take up the mantle of the uh, leaders of the islamic world the other obviously candidate is saudi arabia you know the traditional home of islam um, the king of saudi arabia is the protector of the of the of mecca and medina right so there is that then you have turkey turkey i don't know what they call themselves nowadays turkey or whatever so they are they were the last great islamic power the ottoman empire and they would love to see that happen again the the ottoman empire to be revived and then we also have egypt that also has at some point in history okay held the caliphate so we have four powers let's say iran saudi arabia egypt and turkey and they don't all get along together there is significant rivalry and jealousy among these guys so when you have the, the this the situation where gaza is under siege and israel the yahudis <laughs> are bombarding gaza they were one of these nations would love to take the first step in you know smashing israel but obviously it's not it's easier said than done israel is not some pushover israel is a very powerful nation okay in this region so if if uh, the nations the, the 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 great powers are not careful this could very rapidly expand this war could very rapidly expand beyond where it is right now and if one of these big nations gets involved everybody else will will want to rush in and that's going to be a disaster okay it's going to it's going to be a disaster for the world for the world economy and so on so yeah that's the deal so uh even if borders change there's still going to be disputes okay there are still going to be disputes that that is that is a given right um 
What? <laughs> the Sun Eater says, are we sleepwalking into World War 3? If we are not careful, we will sleepwalk into, into I don't know if it will be World War 3, but it's going to be a larger conflagration beyond the region where it is right now. The East Bank of the Mediterranean. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's good. It could very rapidly expand beyond that, especially if Iran gets involved or uh, Turkey gets involved. Turkey is always tempted to get involved in various things. You know, they are a very aggressive, belligerent nations with huge, outsized ambitions of reviving the of the Ottoman Empire. So yeah, we need to be very careful. India needs to be very prudent about all this. Stay out of this conflict. Don't take sides. Condemn terrorism on principle, but don't take sides over here. And uh, yeah, yep, yep, that's the deal. We'll, we have to be careful. Otherwise, we will sleep, sleepwalk into WW3, which we do not want at all. Please, we don't want that. <clears throat> okay. Pain. Pain says, is Russia's hypersonic missile capacity and China's naval power superior to that of America? Look, um, good question. So the, the, the Americans were the pioneers of hypersonic missiles, um, of hypersonic missiles. What's a hypersonic missile? I think it's typically beyond Mach 5. Okay, Mach, uh, Mach 1 means equal to the speed of sound. Mach 2 means twice the speed of sound. Uh, supersonic is, is Mach 1 and beyond. I think hypersonic, if I'm not mistaken, is Mach 5 plus. Okay, and then you have re-entry speeds, ballistic speeds like Mach 23 and all that, which is what the Agni and various other ballistic missiles achieve on re-entry. That's a whole different story. So when we talk about hypersonic missiles, we're talking about cruise missiles. So we have Brahmos, which is a supersonic missile. It's typically Mach 2 or, or thereabouts. Okay, that's the speed of the Brahmos missile. And it's so large and it's got such a huge momentum that even if you don't put a warhead on the missile, just the impact of the missile at Mach 2 can slice a ship into two clean pieces okay so um, then we have uh, missiles like the 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 zircon missile the russian zircon missile we have uh, what else do we have with kinjal and all that so these are the, the zircon for sure is a hypersonic missile mark 8 mark 9 kind of thing so the russians have been investing i mean you know testing this technology perfecting this technology the americans they had this technology and they kind of shelved it they kind of shelved it and right now they are not able to produce hypersonic missiles that, that's the sense that i get okay so russia clearly is ahead of the us when it comes to hypersonic missiles the chinese also may have hypersonic missiles maybe maybe i don't remember exactly what the status is but they may they definitely will be working on that they have the dongfeng missiles the so-called carrier killer missiles and so on. So that's about hypersonics. It's it's pretty clear that Russia is ahead of the US when it comes to hypersonic missile technology. Uh, where is India in this? We have supersonic missiles like the Brahmos. We are working on the Brahmos next generation NG, the Brahmos 2 and whatnot. So I'm sure there will be, uh, uh, you know, the, the future variants of Brahmos are most likely going to be hypersonic. Sure. Okay. We are also working on... Uh, certain other missiles which would also have uh, hypersonic speeds now when it comes to china's naval power the chinese have been investing in their navy since the early 90s okay in the early 90s their navy the americans considered the chinese navy to be a joke ha 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 we can uh, give them a very bad afternoon and that will be the end of the chinese navy but the chinese have been steadily building up their navy these days they are in a position to churn out destroyers and warships like sausages you know so uh, they probably have the largest navy in the world, the China, Chinese today, numerically speaking, okay. And they also have this uh, um, 
the the uh, what do you call it the coast guard fleet and the merchant navy merchant merchant fleet that also kind of doubles up the, the chinese navy so they you can you know you, you can take any kind of ship any kind of uh, surface vessel and put soldiers on it or you know machine guns on it and then you can even you know jerry jerry man jerry rig a, a reasonably decent sized merchant vessel and put missiles you know uh, anti ship missiles or whatever missiles on it the chinese have been doing that so if you look at it numerically the chinese have probably the world's largest navy i'm not sure still if china is still there when it comes to the lethality of the navy when it comes to the actual lethality and 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 uh, capacity of a navy you don't count the number of ships you count the number of missiles it can deploy at any given point in time okay so from that perspective the chinese are kind of perhaps neck to neck with the japanese and maybe perhaps still be below the capacity of the us navy perhaps okay they also they 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 do have these vls tube 64 and all that on various warships various destroyers they have very large destroyers as well so they are obviously no, you know quantity has a quality of its own like joseph stalin used to say so uh, the chinese are are following the dictum and uh, i think very soon at least in in the region that the chinese are interested in they will have they already have numerical superiority so the region they are interested in is the champa sea which is erroneously called the south china sea okay they want this entire region to be a chinese lake and they obviously want taiwan so this is where they are focusing and they are also worried about japan japan has a tremendously scary navy from the chinese perspective okay south korea is a us possession so the us navy and various assets will be there so the chinese are worried about that you know the the standard old uh, island chain terminology the the three island chains that they worry about all the way to guam uh, where is guam okay guam is somewhere out here uh not this far somewhere here where is guam here is guam yeah here is guam okay not that far so three island chains that the chinese worry about and that's why they are pushing out you know churning out warships like sausages uh but the good thing for india is that they are all tied up over here because of the very strong us presence there because of the very strong japanese navy and the 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 question the problem of taiwan philippines also um these days they have acquired certain very interesting weapons like supersonic missiles from a nation not far from india so uh yeah that's the deal indonesia also may want certain supersonic anti ship missiles uh, <clears throat> so i think um, the americans have have kind of uh, missed a few tricks in the past couple of decades you know they were full of hubris after 1991 after the breakup of the ussr there was this unipolar moment that was that extended all the way into the 2010s until 2012 2015 uh, or so but now there are big uh, big threats for the us on the horizon the russians have stolen a march when it comes to hypersonic missile technology the chinese have a huge navy now okay so yeah that's the deal so that is indeed the the challenges that the us faces right now Okay okay let's see Tejas what does Tejas have to say hi Tejas so India had relations with other countries in the past Egypt Rome and others are known to have knowledge about sea routes then why did Vasco da Gama and others why were they finding routes to India okay good question let's take a look at the map all over again so when we talk about Egypt Egypt is right here okay it's not really far from India well 
so egypt in the old days egyptian civilization it kind of extended into sudan and all that and uh, to 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 travel from india to egypt there are two major ways of doing it first is overland you go so historically pakistan was india you go west of pakistan we we enter iran which is still kind of more or less part of the indian subcontinent and a very you could say you know very similar culture and all that so you go west from iran you enter mesopotamia and then you are at the doorstep of egypt so you can just walk over to egypt it will take you maybe a couple of months okay if you are if you are uh, walking from india with a uh, number of people and a number of cattle it may take you a month or two to reach egypt if you walk a decent distance every day and you're reasonably fit the other way is to go by sea and indians obviously were good sailors so then you would go from what we call the gulf of aden the, the red sea and then you would reach uh, egypt so the egyptians obviously traded with india it's well known we have the introduction introgression of indian zebu cattle in egypt 2000 bc which is 4000 years before today so ancient relations with with egypt with mesopotamia is right here we can just walk there right and we know that india traded with rome we have found lots of indian artifacts in rome in herculaneum in pompeii and so on uh, so when it comes to going to rome indians would probably not have taken the land route they would have taken the sea route okay uh, possibly and uh, and and uh, use the mediterranean sea to reach there okay let's not go into the specifics of, of exactly what route they would have taken <clears throat> so now what happened why did vasco da gama and others have to find a route to india so majorly the the trade that happened between india and europe it happened via land so it would be the land route okay probably between the black sea and the caspian sea go via the caucasus and enter eastern europe and then go all the way to the to western europe so we had well established land routes uh, land uh, land route between india and the western world um, and and europe so the 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 event that precipitated this need for vasco da gama and others to find an alternate sea route that event was the introgression of these uh, nomadic turkic tribes tribes people into the anatolia and and uh, this region which is now called turkey the turks did not live there the turks were a central asian nomadic people okay closely uh, genetically and culturally uh, you know allied with the mongolic peoples and at some point in time in the past 15 1200 years the turks became islamized and that kind of gave them rocket fuel to go and conquer everywhere and uh, about which year was the fall of constantinople uh, whichever whichever year that was i think it was in uh, in the 15th century 1453 was it the fall of constantinople which was the culmination of the turkic uh, invasions of this region so once the turks once the turkic tribes took over anatolia and uh, what we now call turkey and established their their empire the ottoman empire that empire they see the turks were very hostile to the europeans okay and they cut off the land route between india and europe and that is why the europeans were forced to now start looking for an alternate route to india and in those days we did not have the suez canal you know between port said and al suez it's an it's an artificial canal so uh, they were forced to look for an alternate sea route to india 
and Cristoforo Colombo went looking for India in the wrong direction. He ended up discovering, you know, becoming, I mean, he didn't discover it. It was already there. There were people living there. But he was the first, uh, let's say, European, Christian, first Christian, okay, to, to discover the Americas. Before Christopher Columbus, the Vikings, obviously, the Nordic uh, travelers, they did discover North America. They they found, uh, they had a settlement in Los Omedos uh, in North the northeast of, of North America and so on. That's a whole different story. So Christopher Columbus was looking for India. He ended up discovering the Americas for the Europeans. And obviously, eventually, Vasco da Gama found the land, the, the sea route to India with the help of an Indian sailor. And that's the story. Okay, so, so that is the reason why, even though in ancient times, you had trade between India and Egypt, trade between India and Mesopotamia, trade between India and Rome. But because of the cutting off of the land route by the Ottomans. That's why they were forced to find a long circuitous route, sea route to India. Okay. <clears throat> Gaming Lover says, will India be a car-centric society or a public transportation-based society? You know, India has a population of 1.4 billion. India is an enormous nation. If everybody has a car or even one family has a car, imagine the number of millions of cars you will have on the, on the streets, okay? And imagine the kind of pollution it gives out. And imagine how congested the roads will be. I think India should invest in very efficient public transportation systems that are comfortable, enjoyable, and get you to, the, to your destination on time. We have these cities, you know, like for one example is Bangalore. Bangalore is a beautiful city, great climate, but you know, it, it, it's a small town that organically grew big and became a global hub of the IT industry and, and startups and all that. But the streets are so narrow that it's it's very difficult to travel in Bangalore by 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 road. And everybody obviously wants to have a car of their own and see that that creates so many problems. So ideally what you should have is very good public transport, maybe metro, maybe underground railway or whatever. Yeah, which is high speed, very comfortable, a pleasant experience and will get you on there on time. And if it can, you know, cater to the entire population of large cities, I mean, nothing like it. So I would say that, you know, every Indian aspires to have a car and all that. Please don't do that. But yeah, unless you have no option, you will have to get, get a car, right? So I think uh, over time, the Indian government will have to find solutions that uh, eliminate the need for people to buy private transportation and hopefully go towards public transportation that is great, that is really enjoyable, pleasant experience, and, and quick and fast. Yep. Jay <clears throat> uh, Arjun says, what about Chinese occupied Mongolia and how Chinese Han dynasty people suppressed Mongolian language and culture? Well, that's a very long story, but yeah, you are absolutely right. If you look at the map, you know, there is a significant part of Mongolia that is under Chinese occupation. They, the Chinese call it Inner Mongolia. Let's let's search it for it. Inner Mongolia. It's part of China. For what reason? I don't know. So, okay, so they're not demarcating the boundaries. Google is kind of aiding China in this. Uh, so yeah, I would say roughly half of Mongolia is currently under Chinese occupation. Okay, And obviously over there, it's the Chinese language that rules the roost. 
So if you're a Mongolian kid in inner Mongolia, you have to learn the Chinese language and your schooling most likely is going to be in the Chinese language. And you're going to be taught the Chinese uh, Communist Party values of atheism and all that. They will suppress Mongolian Buddhism and all that must be happening. Uh, I I even remember seeing in the news a few years ago, like in, not a very long time ago, the Chinese government was trying to suppress any 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 mentions of the great conqueror, Sri Chinggis Khan and so on. The Chinese are very worried about any... Um, Resurgence in the popularity of Sri Chinggis Khan. I wonder why. <laughs> Maybe because he conquered China and smashed the and, and, and smashed the Chinese Empire and created his own Chinese dynasty, a conquest dynasty, the 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 Yuan dynasty, so on. So yes, you are right. Um, roughly half of Mongolia is currently under Chinese occupation, and uh, I I hope that they also get their land back and their freedom back. Uh, so if you look at China, it's an enormous nation today, but a very significant portion of this land is just territory that's been conquered by the Chinese Communist Party <clears throat> under Mao Zedong. Uh, yeah, so that is indeed the case, and you are right. Um, okay, what else do we have? Um Samarth Gandhi says, is Iran trying to use the engineered crisis in the Middle East for nuke sneak out? What is Iran planning to do further? US conducting another nuclear test already sounds scary. I'm not sure if the US has conducted a nuclear test or if they are planning to do so. Uh, look, if the Americans or any of the great powers goes ahead and conducts a nuclear test today, it's going to be a green signal for everyone to go ahead and do it. So, I'm sure the U.S. will take that into consideration. Uh, so the main question is about Iran. Is Iran trying to use the crisis in the Middle East for a nuke sneak out? So once again, let's go to the Middle East and see the map to orient ourselves. Iran is our great neighbor. I mean, big neighbor. I mean, currently we have a temporary nation in between, but historically it's been our neighbor for the past uh, four or 5,000 years. So uh, Iran, as we know, is an aspiring nuclear power. They have a nuclear uh, program and uh, the objective of the nuclear program, whether people like it or not, is to build nuclear weapons. Iran wants to become a nuclear weapons power. Okay, And uh, the Americans and the Iranians had this deal, the, the uh, JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, which Mr. Trump walked away from unilaterally. So that gave Iran the, well, well it freed up Iran to go and, and resume its attempts to uh, to enrich uranium to weapons grade quality and they've been doing it for quite some time they have uh, you know these these facilities these centrifuges that uh, that process uranium hexafluoride and and uh, you know enrich uranium okay and it's been going on for quite quite a few years the americans have tried various means of, of preventing the iranians from doing this from from uh, obtaining sufficient uh, you know, enriched uranium, uranium, you had the Stuxnet virus that they had introduced into these facilities like Natanz, etc. So my point is, Iran is an aspiring nuclear power and they have been enriching uranium for quite some time. It, I think it is possible they may have sufficient enriched uranium for a nuke or two. They definitely will have sufficient radioactive material, fissile material to construct what is called a dirty bomb. So a dirty bomb is not a nuclear device. The explosive material in a dirty bomb is conventional explosive. Okay, But it what you do is instead of shrapnel, you 
add some radioactive material to the bomb so that when it explodes it kind of vaporizes the radioactive material and disperses it over a large area like you could a terrorist organization organization could do it in a city and contaminate the whole city and you know create huge problems so iran definitely will have enough radioactive material to build a few dirty bombs but they may also have possibly sufficient enriched uranium to maybe you know assemble a, a couple of nukes maybe two or three tactical nukes you know tactical five i don't know 10 20 kiloton hiroshima level bombs they may have it okay uh, <clears throat> and that's what makes this entire crisis very so so very dangerous because uh, you see what's happening is that israel has been uh, for the past couple of years sending ammunition uh to ukraine as we may have forgotten but there's this war going on in ukraine right and and the entire western world has been supplying ukraine with arms and ammunition and israel has also sent uh, ammunition to ukraine because of which israel may perhaps be low on ammunition and if israel faces the prospect of a two front war with hamas in gaza and hezbollah in southern lebanon okay and if other nations uh, get involved in this then israel may suddenly find itself in a very tight spot where it's running out of ammunition and then what does it do in such a situation they could ask their great benefactor the us to target some of these nations and that could you know lead to a confrontation military confrontation kinetic confrontation between between the us and iran and iran is not a pushover iran has sufficient quantities of weapons and ammunition Uh, they have been supplying russia with drones and loitering munitions in the war against israel proxy war over there so I- iran is not quite a pushover and if the us starts any military action with iran iran may target various us military bases in the region including in qatar right um, and that would make things very difficult for the us and for israel and if israel find itself finds itself in a position where its very existence is in under threat then they always have what they call the samson option okay so israel is an undeclared nuclear weapons power everyone knows they have nukes maybe 70 80 nuclear weapons maybe 100 we don't know the number okay but it's roughly around 70 80 maybe 100 and if they find themselves in a situation where they're about to be overrun they could go nuclear and they could hit all these nations and if there's a nuclear exchange if let's say they they nuke iran and iran has let's say two or three nukes they're going to lob them back at israel and this could start a nuclear exchange and when when we talk about iran iran is part of a coalition that involves russia as well as china so if iran is targeted you could get, you could have russian involvement in in this matter russia as we know have been uh, are are the benefactors of the assad regime in syria the americans if they had their way they would have uh, you know taken assad out and installed a puppet regime in syria the russians prevented that from happening there was a terrible civil war in syria we all know what's happened in the past 10 15 years which kind of spilled over everywhere in this region um, the latakia base where is it latakia is a big naval base where you have a significant russian presence so this is a complex geopolitical and military environment a misstep here or there could could you know bring in a much larger conflict that involves powers that don't really belong here but they are here uh yeah so so that's the the situation quite complex 
and that's just where we are right now okay <clears throat> harsh says temples in india have always been in the control of the government what's your opinion on this the government has no business controlling temples okay the government does not control the places of worship of other religions of the of the so called minority religions or the, so islamic places of worship the government has no say in that the you know they stay out of it when it comes to other religions like sikh dharma or jain dharma or bodh dharma or or the other abrahamic religion christianity the government stays out of their places of worship but when it comes to us the major civilizational religion that came out of india what is called hinduism hindu dharma the government controls the places of worship and extracts all the money out of them whatever people donate this is an abomination that's why i have always said that india is the most hindu phobic nation in the world and hindus are second class citizens or i don't know what what class citizens in india i think it's an abomination that this is a situation it's an it's essentially a, india is essentially a hindu phobic apartheid apartheid state okay and it's unacceptable that this still continues in the 21st century all right um 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 what else do we have um Shyam says, "Is the fear of hostages holding Israel back from an all-out attack in the tunnels? Look, tunnels are by nature stealthy. They're covered. They're hidden. Okay, and, and most likely Hamas will have the entrances of the tunnels under various buildings, maybe schools, maybe universities, maybe hospitals. That's what they do, right? So it's it's almost impossible for Israel to use satellite imagery and all that stuff to find out where the tunnels begin and where they end. It's only they would have to actually invade Gaza physically. put boots on the ground and conduct a building by building neighborhood by neighborhood search to find where the tunnels are okay so that's number one why the israelis are not able to attack tunnels of course they may have spies in gaza and they may have some human human intelligence which would enable them to take out certain tunnels or or to or to you know uh destroy certain tunnels but most of the tunnels are are very well hidden i would imagine okay that's number one and when it comes to the hostages the 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 hamas uh, terrorists have taken a large number of israeli hostages men women children all that i would imagine that you know israel has lived in a very tough neighborhood for a very long time i would imagine that you know israel would have taken the tough decision and written these hostages off what that means is that they must have said to themselves that it's very unfortunate but we have to consider these people these hostages as dead and then only can they otherwise their the the hands of their military will be tied they won't be able to do anything they'll have to take every step very carefully and they can be blackmailed the thing is you don't negotiate with terrorists you do not you know fall prey to the blackmail of terrorists this is something that india has learned the hard way uh, you had the the indian airlines hijacking right remember a couple of decades ago in which uh, pakistani terrorists hijacked an indian airlines uh, plane which uh, took off from kathmandu then uh, i think it was a completely botched operation by, from the indian government okay because we negotiated with terrorists and uh, eventually the plane ends up in amritsar it takes off from we allowed it to take off from amritsar it went i think to kandahar in afghanistan and you had the taliban 1.0 in power over there 
okay and the indian government sent another plane with these people were asking for the rescue for for the release of various hostages of of, of various terrorists who were in prison in indian prisons and the indian government went ahead and did this right including some of the great terrorists who major terrorists who live in pakistan today so this is something you should never do it shows that you are a weak state a soft state israel is the opposite of a soft state india is no longer a soft state by the way okay uh, india is a, is a, is, a, is a nation that hits hits its back but israel is the original hard state they don't negotiate with terrorists if you take hostages they're going to come after you and even if the hostages die they're going to come after you so i don't think this fear of hostages is holding israel back from an all out attack in the tunnels maybe it is other considerations it's definitely not a fear of the hostages getting killed i think they have most likely written off those hostages okay um <clears throat> uh dutch panderlinde says if trump gets reelected reelected in 2024 will we see any noticeable changes in the geopolitical situation in the world which is quite messed up as two different wars are going on at the same time uh yeah we have the middle east war israel hamas hezbollah that's going on and we have the israel um, sorry the ukraine war as well look <laughs> let's say hypothetically president trump Potus 45 becomes Potus 47. Okay, which means that he is re-elected in 2024. Will we see any major geopolitical changes as a consequence? I don't think so. I don't think so. And why do I say this? It's because the Potus 45 presidency has shown us a lot of things. Potus 45, the 46th president, is Biden. Mr. Biden, is anybody under the illusion that Biden is running the country? Biden. is a geriatric geriatric okay he's 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 way past gone mentally okay he i don't know what he suffers from most likely dementia or whatever he is in no position to run a household let alone run a country and if you look at his vice president i mean in case the president is incapacitated or mentally gone then the vice president should step in while the vice president is miss kamala harris who herself is clearly demonstrably incompetent so neither the president nor the vice president are running the country but someone's running the country okay so this this episode has told us that the us president is not the person who genu- who actually runs the country there is something i mean everyone knows it's there it's what's called the deep state the foreign policy uh, establishment and the military industrial complex establishment which essentially is run out of the pentagon right that's what really runs the country it's an unelected regime that is never out of power okay whoever is the president the president essentially serves a, a very specific role of that of that of keeping attention away from where power really resides um so and if you look at trump's first presidency 2016 to 2020 he was not allowed to do anything that he wanted he wanted to build a wall with mexico didn't happen he wanted to drain the swamp in washington dc or well, the swamp is very much there he was not able to do to even prick you know do pin prick on the on the swamp he was able to do nothing okay his own party turned against him why is this it's because he's an outsider he's not a career politician he's a businessman he's a he's a billionaire and he somehow accidentally won the presidency and the us uh, political establishment i'm sure they see this as a mistake that they will not allow to happen again so first of all i see 
I don't really see Trump winning 24. But even if he does succeed in winning 24, I don't think he's going to be able to, to, to effect any significant change in U.S. foreign policy. I don't think it's going to happen. Okay, So I don't think there will be any noticeable changes in the geopolitical situation in the world. Um, well, as the president, you, you can order your troops to do this or do, do that. But if it does happen, it's going to be very minor, very insignificant. And the way the U.S. is embroiled in various wars, it's, it's very hard to extricate itself out of it. Right now, obviously, they are not fighting the Ukraine war themselves. But uh, we know how things are. So I think it's going to be, uh, it's not going to make much, a very, very major change if Trump does come to power again. All right. All right. All right. <clears throat> Explain about Native Americans. The Native Americans are the true inhabitants and the true natives of the, of the Americas. What are the Americas? These are the Americas, North America and South America, which are connected by this region, the, the Isthmus of Panama. Okay. So the Native Americans are the people who who lived, who, who still live, some of them still live there, but the people who are the original natives of these regions way before the Europeans, the whites, came into the picture. So the first known contact between Europeans and the people of the Americas happened about a thousand years ago when, when Eric the Red, a Viking explorer, first glimpsed the coast of Newfoundland in northeastern uh, America, okay, North America. And it was his son Leif Erikson who made first landfall, who actually landed on the coast. And then the Vikings, they established at least one settlement called Lons o Medoves in Newfoundland. And they encountered natives whom they called Skrylings. And then you later on, I don't know what happened to the, those settlements and those people. Maybe they, maybe they got assimilated into the native population or not. We don't know. And then you had the invasion which starts with the genocide that Christopher Columbus perpetrated on the natives of what they call Hispaniola, the, the Carib, the Arawak people and all that. And then you have the Spaniards who ravage South America. And then you have the French and the English who ravage North America. And, uh, you know, conservative estimates tell you that the, the genocide was at least 56 million individuals over a period of 100 or 200 years. Most likely it was in excess of 100 million. Okay. And they also wiped out the North American wild bison so as to destroy the Native American economy and to destroy the Native American way of life. So the Native Americans are, well, they are people who are closely related to the Siberian, Tungusic, and Mongolic peoples, okay? And they most likely crossed over. Most likely, I'm saying, most likely, not 100%, we're not 100% sure, but they most likely crossed over the Bering Strait in the during the last Ice Age, about maybe 13,000, 15,000 years ago, when this entire region was frozen over, and you, could, and you could just walk in to North America. But it's not like that's where... The, the, uh, so it doesn't mean that, that North America and South America were settled and the process began only 13,000 years ago because we have found evidence of human settlements in South America that go back more than 100,000 years, more than a lakh years. So history is very complicated. We are still finding new evidence. But yeah, that in brief is the deal about the Native Americans. They are the true natives of America. They are now marginalized very badly, especially in North America. They are not even second class, they're third class citizens. They are forced to stay, to live on reservations. Do you want to see reservations? Let's look at reservations. Look at this. Mescalero Reservation. 
and you can see it's it's uh, you can see the shape straight lines it's land that's been kept aside for these native americans and they are forced to live on that and they essentially it's third world conditions over there while the the invaders and their and the settlers live in great <laughs> comfort and all that you have nava this rama navajo indian reservation the pueblo people the Kanoncito Indian Reservation. And you see this all across the US, okay? So the Americans, the government will say that, you know, we have set aside land for the Native Americans. We treat them with dignity and all that. But actually, they are marginalized very badly. Um, there's terrible racism against them. The police are very harsh on them. And it's it's just it's just a horror story, okay? And these are the nations that, that lecture the world about human rights. So there we have it. Okay. So this is a question I get like 20 times a day. Uh, Dukati Ragnarok says, when will India take back Pakistan occupied Kashmir from Pakistan? Look, patience. Patience. Let's be patient. The What is the ideal way of, of India getting back POK or whatever we want? Do we want to go and fight and fire shots and may perhaps lose a few soldiers? We don't want to do that. The ideal situation is where Pakistan disintegrates on its own without any without any action from India. And then you just walk in and take back what is yours. That is the ideal situation. Okay. So it should happen spontaneously, organically from within Pakistan without any Indian military involvement. And that can be engineered over time. I don't see Pakistan playing more than two, one more World Cup cricket. Okay. This is the 2023 World Cup that we are playing right now, you know, World Cup in 20, 2027, I don't see them them playing the 2031 World Cup. I don't think Pakistan will, will exist by the time. So it's all about India rising, 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 okay? And as India rises, the foreign interference in the region will decline, 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 decline. And eventually a stage will come where Pakistan will, because of its own internal uh, problems, break apart on its own. I mean, you know, so it's, uh, so we need to be patient and we need to get this done in the most ideal manner without firing a single shot, ideally. Uh, Noman Ratnani says, uh, the recent protest in POK, is it something done by RAW? I would say, no, no, no. We we Indians are very peace-loving people. We don't interfere in the uh, internal affairs of other nations. These protests in POK are happening because, truthfully, because the people are oppressed very badly by the ISI, by the Pakistan military. Okay, People are sick and tired in POK. Uh, about the situation and what's happening there. Look, you go to POK and the people there can see across the border how the situation is. Across the border in free Jammu and Kashmir, which is Indian Jammu and Kashmir, you will find that everybody has a great standard of living. Everybody has electricity. Everybody has schools. There are roads built everywhere. The border road organizations, roads organization is working day and night to build more and more infrastructure. The situation is brilliant. It's, it's, it's superb. Every kid goes to school. Everything is great. And across the border in Pakistan, occupied Kashmir, the situation is dire. Okay, people are oppressed. There is no, there are no schools, there are no hospitals. Okay, there is no electricity, there are no roads. And wherever you have something, you have the heavy boot of the Pakistani military on your back. So people are genuinely in POK sick and tired of this occupation. They can see how much better things are for their brothers and sisters across the line of control. And they would want that for themselves. 
Okay, so that's why they're protesting. They are they are they are just fed up of the Pakistani occupation. They have realized that all of this was a lie, that the Pakistan will give us freedom and whatever rights. What have they got? What have they got from Pakistan? And look at the situation in in, in Free Jammu Kashmir, in which is with India, where it belongs, right? So I don't think it's done by raw or anything. I genuinely don't think it's done by raw. It's it's genuine, spontaneous frustration and anger, and people are just fed up of Pakistan. And that's why I say that give it time, Pakistan will break up on its own. Okay. Um, 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 um. Anurag, okay, we back, <laughs> come back to the Middle East. What's your thought uh, that will the US take advantage of the Israel-Palestine conflict by attacking Iran? Maybe, maybe their development of military seems the same way. Look, it is a possibility. The Americans have always wanted to take revenge on Iran for uh, the what they call the Iran hostage crisis. After 1979, when the Ayatollahs took over, there was the, the Islamic revolution in Iran. Um, the US embassy was besieged by students and protesters and Iranians and the Iranian, Iranian government. And uh, a number, a large number of US diplomats and operatives okay, were taken as hostages. And this lasted a very long time. After a very long time, they were released. But the Iranian regime looks upon the US as Saitan e Buzurg, the great devil, right? Uh, so the U.S. has always wanted to to punish Iran and put Iran in its place, and as we know, they have deployed there are there are a large, very large number of U.S. military bases and installations all around Iran, right? Uh, so they will obviously would they would obviously love to to punish Iran take military action against Iran and effect a regime change in Tehran and and install a puppet government that is, you know, uh, more amenable to the U.S. That's always the dream, you know. So uh, it depends whether the U.S. will be able to do this, take advantage of the conflict or not. So uh, they'll be able to do it if there is direct evidence or they are able to produce any kind of evidence of Iranian involvement in uh, the conflict. Uh, We know that Hamas and Hezbollah both have ties with Iran. Uh, but it will take more than that to 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 precipitate U.S. kinetic military action against Iran, and it's not as as easy as it sounds. I mean, look at the distance from let's say this point in the sea in the in the Persian Gulf to Tehran. It's 645 kilometers. It's a long distance. I mean, to take to to target Tehran with fighter planes or whatever, it's not easy. You can use cruise missiles and all. But then your naval assets are also vulnerable. The Iranians have the ability to stealthily tail US uh, warships and maybe target them. Okay, so it's not as it's not going to be a walkover. So uh, there's going to be an element of caution. But yeah, th- that's the great dream of the US to, to you know, effect a regime change in Iran. Okay. <clears throat> okay, Kunal Dingra says, how can trains like Vande Bharat and Namo Bharat help the Indian economy to prosper? You know, it's all about connectivity. It's about connecting the nation and making it easy, really easy for Indians to travel from travel from one place to another. And, and that is what bolsters the economy. So for the longest time, Indian the Indian rail network was the same as what the British left behind. So the British built the Indian rail network. And this was the infrastructure of occupation and extraction. The purpose that the British had for building the Indian railways was to ensure that whatever materials and and supplies and goods they were stealing from India, 
they were transported from the interior parts of india to the various indian ports like like madras now chennai bombay now mumbai and so on right so that was a that was the whole point of the indian railways that the british built and after 1947 india almost built almost nothing more you know it's only after in the past decade or so that we are seeing seeing a significant uptick in the in the in the construction of 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 highways and railways and all that <clears throat> now it's not enough to have good sufficient railway lines you also need to have high speed railway so trains like vande bharat and namo bharat are not exactly high speed trains but semi high speed trains so they, they do a much better job instead of traveling at 50 or 60 or 70 kilometers per hour they may travel at 1 120 130 kilometers per hour maybe even 110 maybe even 100 there's a significant uh, you know uh, significant difference and it makes things faster so for an economy to really grow and to be really unleashed to its full potential the entire nation should needs to be interconnected let's say you're a business person sitting in 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 uh let's say you you're sitting in in tirupati okay and you have a business idea and you need to go to let's say uh let's say you need to go to jorhat in assam now typically you will have to take a train or something but uh, so a plane okay and th- that's where all the all the airports also come in that uh, so many airports are being built on on a very uh on a war footing but even if you have a high speed train or semi high speed train that can you know uh, offset the the travel traveling time then it, you know it it really helps you in your business and it it accelerates the the growth of your business and there are certain sectors okay in which let's let's say you want to travel from let's say from mumbai to pune okay so if you want to fly to pune you have to go to the airport you have to go there at least 2 hours before the flight takes off uh and traveling to the airport will take 1 hour so that's 3 hours gone and mumbai to pune will be maybe 45 minutes or half an hour or something so the total uh, traveling time for you from the time you step out of your house is at least 4 hours and if you have a semi high speed train that can get you there in let's say 2 hours i mean isn't it better and that to in comfort so so that that's where all these trains come in vande bharat namo bharat and all that and the more of these uh, train uh, routes that we build the more the indian um, population will be integrated together and the economy will also be 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 unleashed because of that so that's what uh, you know these uh, these uh, high speed rail networks and all that do that's what happened in china and that's what truly unleashed japan okay the japanese uh, economy was truly unleashed in the 1950s and 1960s with the building of the shinkansen shinkansen whatever they call it the the the, 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 the japanese high speed trains which totally connected japan from one end to to the other and it totally unleashed the japanese economy so that's what these these uh, high speed trains do and that's what um, india is investing in with with very good reason <clears throat> all right <clears throat> what okay ajit says i have noticed that hitite kings and city names are very similar to sanskrit names like pithana anitta kushara how similar was the was this language in that time period okay so the hitite empire or kingdom whatever you want to call it it's something that existed about around 1500 bc where did it exist it existed in northern syria and anatolia in 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 western mesopotamia okay uh, in this region and and you had the 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 hittites and you also had the mitanni and both of these kingdoms were ruled 
so the, the people they spoke the hittite language okay let, let, let's 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 retrack or retrace it i think the hittite language was what is classified as an indo-iranian language okay and uh, well when we say indo-iranian uh, indo-european sorry so it has it has its origins in the oldest known indo-european language and uh, you know the oldest europe indo known indo-european language is obviously vedic sanskrit and maybe pre-vedic sanskrit and you also had the mitanni empire the mitanni empire had an indo-aryan sanskrit speaking aristocracy or ruling class okay so this region it is clear that about 4000 or so years ago or maybe 3 and 1000 years ago indians traveled out of india westwards and settled in this region and we also have corroborated you know supporting evidence which is the that the same exact time where these indian origin kingdoms arise over here you have the introgression of the indian zebu cattle in this region and they eventually make them way into egypt and so on and so forth long story so the hittites were of indian origin the mitanni rulers were also of indian origin okay and that's why you have these names if you if you see the names of the mitanni rulers for example you have tveshratha you have parthatva you, you have all these sanskrit origin names and you have this horse training manual by kikuli a horse master of the mitanni who writes in the in the hurrian language but there are certain terms in which he he has he doesn't have the words because the hurrian language doesn't have those words those technical words and therefore he has to use his own native language for that sanskrit sanskrit terminology navavartana and and so on and so forth you know take you know numbers and various technical terms for horse for horse training and all that so that's the that's the oldest attested evidence of written sanskrit actually which we find in this region in in uh, in syria northern syria and mesopotamia and and the city the, the capital city of the of the mitanni it was called vashukhanni which is the mine of wealth in sanskrit so yeah very interesting history story and it's something that we need to we should actually look into in greater depth okay <clears throat> what else do we have uh umax says your thoughts on the archaeobotanical findings of custard apple and bharat confirm the bharati american contact i'm not sure i've not really studied this and i'm not look, looked into this in detail uh, it's something new that i'm learning because of this comment so i will look it up and maybe next time i'll speak about this you even have you know uh columbus discovered Amer the americas in what in 1498 was it or whichever year it was somewhere around that time late 15th century okay and we know that maize the plant the crop maize is a south american crop okay latin america south american crop but if you look at ways there are certain temple inscriptions in india you know carvings of maize that predate predate the so called discovery of the americas by columbus so yeah there are lots of pieces of circumstantial evidence here and there that kind of tell you that there is more that to all this and meets eye and maybe the indians had contact with the americas long before the europeans uh, came to know about the americas it's possible right 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 devansh desai says when we search zero was invented by which country mesopotamia appears what the hell is going on is it some propaganda look when you look at when you search on a search engine it's going to only give you what the prevalent uh, 
uh, wisdom is and in the west the prevalent wisdom is that india did nothing and it's uh, everything good came out of somewhere else they even say that the oldest indo european language is some some random uh, anatolian language or something you know so they they try to take the credit out of india away from india for everything for mathematics for zero for for the oldest you know, indo european language and so on so it's propaganda it's what their historians propagate and because it's the prevalent wisdom and the prevalent uh, narrative in the west that's why it always appears on top of all your all of your search engines and all that so let's not get swayed by this we know it's propaganda it is it is all right all right <clears throat> uh what else do we have there are lots of interesting questions aditya ravi kumar says how can india implement sanskrit as a national language the goal is for people to be able to see speak and read sanskrit even in the villages how do we accomplish this it's going to take time it's going to be it's going to be politically very fraught because there is this very strong anti sanskrit anti hinduism movement that's been built up by the dravidian politicians in southern india okay uh this very strong sentiment that's been built up and and inculcated through the media through the political class through various uh, media narratives and the education system okay and because of this all a very significant percentage of the people in southern india they see sanskrit as a foreign imposition on them okay even though it is the cholas and and the various other such kings and dynasties that promoted hinduism and sanskrit and, and took it um, to a very large extent across uh, southeast asia so yeah that's the thing so there's a very significant population percentage of the population in india that is very strongly opposed to sanskrit so it's going to take time for us to be able to do this we, we, we will need a strong government and we will need to decolonize the minds of indians sanskrit is the language the, the civilizational language of all of india north south east west all of it okay it's not some foreign imposition but you say this to somebody in southern india especially in tamil nadu they'll come and like they'll see you as the enemy you are an invader you are you are trying to impose your culture on us ours is a, is a separate culture it's a secular culture we never had hinduism and brahminism and all that nonsense they talk and the justification of for all, all of this is the aryan invasion theory which is still taught as gospel truth in india's schools colleges and universities so it's it's multiple generation it's 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 a multiple generational indoctrination and brainwashing that has been done to our people by the education system by by unscrupulous politicians who are doing it for their own benefit and that's where we find ourselves today so it's going to be very difficult to do it immediately maybe it'll take another i don't know how many years we'll need a very strong leadership in india to be able to start this process okay and if it is to be implemented it has to be implemented in phases it has to be done through the education system so year year 1 what you do is you introduce sanskrit as the as the native language in the first year of education what we call kindergarten nursery the next year you you pass it on to 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 what they call junior kg then senior kg standard 1 so it will take a process of 20 years before this you can do this but 20 years is a very short period of time in the bigger scheme of things so that's how you do it yeah it has to be done through the through the education system through nowhere else will you be able to do this but it's going to be it's going to take time and it's going to take the right kind of uh, political climate to be able to achieve this and for us to decolonize properly because our our great civilizational export has been Sans- sanskrit and hinduism right throughout throughout the world especially throughout southeast asia eastern asia and all that even even japan ha huh. shaheen wahman zadegan uh, 
Durud Bair Shoma. Greetings. Thank you. So, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, okay. Tushar says, how long will this Gaza conflict last and how long and how is India going to be affected by this? So listen, I hope it doesn't last long, but you never know. It could last long, especially if other nations get involved and it becomes a long, a slow, long simmering conflict like what you have in Ukraine. Then it could last for a long time, which would be terrible for the people who live in this region. How is India going to be affected by this? Look, if the conflict expands beyond where it is, it, it, it engulfs, let's say, Iran, Saudi Arabia, all that, then it's going to be a disaster for the world economy because the most of the energy of the world, you know, the oil and gas comes from here. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, they're two of the major oil exporters. India, uh, the UAE also could get uh, get affected by this, right? Oman, Yemen, all that. Uh, we have excellent relations with Saudi Arabia. If Saudi Arabia, let's say, is at war for whatever reason, and uh, if the Iranians are at war with the US and they, and let, let's say they choke off, they, they cut off the, the, the Strait of Hormuz, which connects the Persian Gulf with the Indian Ocean, then that could, uh, you know, cut the, uh, send oil prices skyrocketing. It could be a big problem for India. Okay, that's one thing. The other thing is that one of the major outcomes of the G20 summit, okay, was the India Middle East Europe Trade and Transportation Corridor, which was supposed to hit the ground running and start within a month of the end of the summit. The Saudis wanted to wanted it to the construction to start right away, but now, but this IMEC, this corridor was supposed to pass through the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, and then move on to Greece and bypass Turkey. But now that this conflict is happening exactly in the wrong place, the India, Middle East, Europe, trade and transportation corridor, its, its construction will not start now. So this corridor was supposed to be a game changer, a genuine viable alternative to the Chinese built and road BRI thing, right? But see, now it's not happening right now. It may still happen in the future once things settle down, hopefully. So these are various ways in which India is going to be affected by this. And not just India, but the whole world. Because let's say in the next, by, by 2030, we have a very strong corridor ready over here, the IMEC. And it's going to benefit India, it's going to benefit Europe, and it's going to benefit the Middle East region as well, the Gulf region as well. And India could similarly create another corridor which will connect India all the way to Japan or Australia, even Australia, you know, in some way or the other, uh, multimodal corridor. So, yeah, you know, so these conflicts, especially the, the conflict that happens in the Middle East region, it's going to have repercussions all across the world. So just, just that's just two or three ways in which you could, you, the, India is going to be affected by this, and not just India, but the entire world. Yeah, so, so you got to, so these things are important and India needs to keep a very close watch on what's happening and be proactive in taking actions to prevent too much of this problem from spilling over and affecting India. Anisha says, uh, Maldives' new PM has given ult ultimatum for Indians to leave. Your views about Maldives and India relations in the future. Look, uh, Maldives is, is kind of uh, a place where you have this geopolitical proxy conflict happening between India and China. Okay. So the Maldives are essentially an extension of the Lakshadweep archi archipelago. Uh, if you go west of of uh, of Kerala, you have the Lakshadweep archipelago, and 
that is uh, it's uh, something that uh, goes right into the maldives ar- archipelago which goes all the way south and actually the the end point of the maldives is diego garcia which is currently occupied by the americans and the and the, and the british okay that's a whole different story so maldives is a is a strategically important reason a region sorry region country nation whatever you want to call it and historically it's been part of the indian civilization indian subcontinent right uh now the chinese have been eyeing this region for a very long time the chinese as we know they have been trying to encircle india at sea by creating this string of naval bases that kind of encircles india uh you know they 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 have hambantota in sri lanka you know the, we know we, we all know this i'm sure the good old string of pearls uh, strategy and maldives is one of the components that they would like to incorporate into the string of pearls so maldives is a place where you have this proxy conflict happening between india and china the chinese are very good at this they will simply offer unlimited amounts of money to a politician who is pliable and willing to do their bidding so there are certain politicians in maldives certain parties that are pro china and some are more nationalistic and pro india so now there's this new election and this new prime minister has come in and he wants indians to leave so so what india needs to do is india needs to get stronger india needs to build its economy build up its navy okay uh, this see the indian in government indian navy keeps on saying that the indian ocean region is our strategic backyard well words and slogans will not make it india's strategic backyard we need to have a significant not significant a massive naval presence a visible naval presence in this region at all times so whenever a foreign uh, ship sails through this through this region they should see the indian presence and say that oh my god now yeah yeah this is a place where you have indians everywhere indian naval assets everywhere so that's what india needs to do once india does that the chinese uh, presence will naturally decrease okay and because it is close to india we will have a, the upper hand and then once you have the upper hand navally and your navy is present everywhere these local politicians will also behave themselves they'll be more they'll be they'll be more inclined to behave themselves and be, be more pro india and of course india needs to play the diplomatic game as well and whatever the chinese do we need to counter that in a variety of ways so right now maldives is a place like like i said earlier that uh, the sahel region of africa is kind of the place where the new cold war is unfolding it's being played out between the us between france between russia and china you know everybody is vying is is vying for supremacy in every country over here similarly a similar thing is happening in the maldives between india and china so if india plays plays its cards right then the chinese will will slowly lose their influence in the region similarly we are seeing, seeing something similar happening in nepal as well and it, because of the blunders of the indian government in the 1990s um the the hindu monarchy of nepal was destroyed and the the maoists the communists the anti indian terrorists essentially came to power in nepal but that's what happened and because of this nepal kind of became more and more pro china that that's that's the situation today it's entirely because of the stupid ridiculous policies of the indian government of of that time so yeah so there are lots of problems that we are facing today which are a consequence of the blunders of previous governments now we have to find ways of solving them and it's going to take time so i would say that india and maldives the relations right now are kind of like this maldives is a place where you have a proxy conflict happening a conflict um, you know 
there is this battle for influence that's going on in the Maldives. It's going to be a while, maybe 10-20 years before India can properly take the upper hand in this region. Okay. <clears throat> okay, Sharar Chaudhary says, why hasn't Russia used its air force enough in Ukraine like Israel is doing now in Gaza? See, it, it, it's it's all because of what objectives Russia has in Ukraine. Russia Russia doesn't want to flatten Ukraine and then take over a, a, a wasteland. Okay, that's not what Russia wants. Russia may not even want to annex the whole of Ukraine or even half of Ukraine. They've Okay, let's go back to the map. So the Russians uh, have taken over the Donbass region, right? Luhansk, Donetsk, all the, all these regions. Uh, they had taken Kharkiv also. They withdrew from there. And it's a long story. So Russia, I don't think they ever wanted to flatten Ukraine, destroy Ukraine completely, and then take over a wasteland. They don't even, they have even tried their best to minimize civilian casualties. Of course, in a war, civilians will unfortunately die. Okay, that's just the nature of warfare. But they did their best from day one to minimize civilian casualties. So typically when the Americans, let's say when the Americans invaded Iraq in uh, 1991 or 2003, what they did was they slammed millions of, I would not say millions, but um, tens of thousands of tons of bombs, hundreds of thousands of tons of bombs into cities like Baghdad with no consideration for civilian casualties. And they live streamed everything on CNN, right? So that's what the Americans do. They use the what they call the shock and awe tactics. They flatten entire nations and then they make sure that no civilian casualties are shown on TV. That's what they do. The Russians did not want that at all. They wanted to take Ukraine as intact as possible. Ideally, they just want to change the regime in Kiev, get rid of Zelensky and put a puppet government in place, which would be pro-Russia, pro-Russia, and then make sure that Ukraine becomes a neutral power, which is essentially a buffer against the NATO uh, regions in the West. That's what Russia wants. And of course, they don't want to risk their, their air assets. They have a very powerful air force, but they don't want to risk it. They have used helicopters and maybe a few Sukhois or MiGs here and there, older versions, but they have not really used the air force. So what is the Russian objective? The Russian objective is to effect regime change in Kiev, uh, get rid of the Western influence in, in uh, Ukraine, and make and install a pro-Russia puppet government in Kiev. Get rid of Zelensky. Okay, Zelensky can go and live in the West and enjoy his billions. Um, and maybe some part of Ukraine, maybe Western Ukraine, could even eventually reunify with Poland. And that's a whole different story, which we'll not go into right now. So that's what Russia actually wants. And they want to do this with minimum casualties. Obviously, casualties are going to be high if you have a two-year-plus war, which it is like right now. Right now. But they want to have as few casualties as possible. They want to fight as little as possible and achieve their objectives while, while doing so. Um, and now things are meandering in Ukraine, as we know, right? Right now, the whole focus is down south in the Middle East region, in Israel and Gaza. Uh, the billions of dollars that were flowing in to, is, uh, into, into Ukraine from the US, that money is now slowing down to a trickle. And very soon, and and, and 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 Ukraine has suffered such incredible catastrophic losses in its armed forces that, you know, the armed forces are very badly depleted. They are dependent, completely dependent on the West for arms and ammunition and, and all kinds of supplies. Now that is slowing down to a trickle. So now it's essentially, unless the, the supplies start again, it's essentially a matter of time before Ukraine falls. Okay. 
and the Russians will eventually just be able to walk into Kiev and change the regime or do something like that. It may take six months, it may take the next three years, but it, it if things continue the way they are right now, that's what's going to happen. So, so then why why you use the air force? Just let it just just be patient and wait for Ukraine to fall into your lap. That should, that would be the Russian perspective on this. So that's why. Russia has not used its, its air force. It does the Russian government. I don't think they see the Ukrainians as enemies. They see the Ukrainians as their own people, which they actually are. Okay, so these are the reasons why they are not behaving the way Israel is behaving in Gaza or the way the U.S. has behaved historically in whatever nations it has invaded. All right. Uh, Benzene says, why is it so difficult to produce crystal blades for fighter jet engines? So, you know, when you have a fighter jet or any jet engine, you inside a jet engine, you have incredibly high temperatures, way higher than the melting point of steel or iron or whatever. And you have very high pressures as well. And your turbine blades need to be able to withstand those temperatures and perform for hours and hours at a, at a stretch. Okay. And then do all over again, do that all over again, and then all over again every time the plane flies. So you need to be able to produce materials that uh, whose 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 uh, properties are such that they can withstand incredibly high temperatures and pressures, temperatures and pressure that, that would destroy any normal steel uh, blade or 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 aluminum or or, or iron or whatever, right? So you need exotic materials. You need to be able to build exotic materials. So what, what they do is that they produce these turbine blades out of a single crystal of metal. A single crystal. And that crystal has, been, has to be grown from a nucleation point. If you study chemistry or, or material science, you know, that crystal is grown inside out, out of a single nucleation point. And it, it, it's a very, well, it's, it's, it's very high tech. It's a very difficult process. Okay. And uh, this is something, this technology is something that's that's been developed in the West. Certain companies have this technology. Rolls-Royce, I'm, I'm sure they have it. Uh, Safran of France has it. Uh, and certain other nations would have it. It's something they've only been able to develop through lots of trial and error. And this process took decades. It took decades. Okay. So that's the deal. It's not easy to produce jet engine uh, jet engines that can produce at the that can perform at the at the at the highest level. Yeah, it's it's a process of painstaking trial and error, trial and error. You need to invest in material science. You need to invest in ceramics. You need to invest in exotic materials. You need a big research pool of scientists who do all this research. You need to invest in the right kind of labs. Invest. In, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in building these labs and, uh, and having all this technology. It takes time and takes a lot of money and a lot of effort. Okay. And obviously, when it comes to India, we previous governments were all about, okay, we don't have it. Why, why should we develop it on, on our own? Let's just buy it and we'll actually make some money in the process. Let's buy jet engines. Why, why make our own jet engine? Why develop our own fighter, fighter planes? Let's just buy fighter planes and we'll get nice kickbacks. So that's how it's always been in India, a lot of corruption, a lot of, I mean, they just didn't care about the nation. I'm not singling out or pointing fingers at any specific government or individual. I'm just saying that's how it was generally. And that has changed only in the recent past. And now, if we were to start the process of developing uh, 
you know a jet engine that would be able to that we we could use on let's say the AMC or any other future fighter plane that process could take at least a decade maybe two decades that's just how it is it takes time it's not something that you throw money at it and throw money let's say i throw 500 million dollars at it and then i'll in 6 months i'll get a jet engine that's not how it works it takes time so that's why it's so difficult it's such a difficult technology it's such a uh that's the technology is so advanced okay it, it takes a lot of trial and error so that's just how it is uh arunima shrivastava says i am from nepal my country is suffering from christian missionaries they started converting hindus hugely uh muslim population also increasing here it's scary look i'm aware this entire process started after the earthquake so you had this earthquake in nepal which year was it a few years ago 5 6 7 years ago terrible earthquake in nepal lots of people died lots of destruction and i could see this chatter on social media among the evangelist groups that these nepalese temples have fallen down now churches should come up in, in their place so it's uh, yeah it's it's uh, yeah that's just that's just what they do they are called soul vultures right i mean you know i have nothing against a person converting from one religion to another if that need for conversion that spiritual need comes from within it should be your own choice but what these people do is that they of they go to these poverty stricken countries or or countries where some recent tragedy like an earthquake has happened and in exchange for aid they require the people to convert that's what they do it is that's why they called soul vultures so this is horrible and uh, looks like the nepalese government is turning a blind eye to this so it's very unfortunate um yeah so uh, i'm i'm glad that you are mentioning this here the world needs to know that the indigenous culture is under threat the indigenous culture that's 10000 plus years old the indigenous nepalese culture hindu hinduism is under threat they're trying to eradicate it which is happening in other parts of india also but i think we are a very ancient civilization all of us and eventually in the long run we will prevail especially as india gets more powerful we'll be able to hopefully uh, give some aid the right kind of aid you know to to all of our neighbors all of our civil, spiritual civilizational uh, brethren so yeah i hope things get better but currently that's the situation that is indeed the situation yeah uh um giuseppe di fraia one second let me just deal with uh, an individual okay <laughs> Giuseppe Defraia says, "How can I please stop simping and worshiping women? As male simp for women, women's rights issues. Sometimes I get accused of being a male simp. Can you please teach me on how to stop? I, 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 I don't, don't know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with uh, liking women. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess what you mean by simping is uh, you put too much value in the other person or something like that." I guess what you need to do is become more confident and 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 develop yourself as an individual and see that there is a huge amount of value in yourself yourself as well so that you don't feel like you are worthless and every other person let's say women are 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 you know like a million times more valuable than you see all humans have some intrinsic value and it is something we can develop on our own so I I would say that if you feel this way maybe you feel some sense of sense of ined- inadequacy in yourself because of whatever reason I don't know what it could or could not be because I don't know you personally I would say try and introspect and find and ask yourself what is it you feel about yourself where do you feel that you are inadequate and then work on that 
then work on that you know you can always grow as a as an individual and grow as a human being and whatever your weaknesses are you can turn them into your strength as well so for example some just just a random example maybe maybe you feel that you're not physically strong enough i'm just saying some people may feel that way well go to the gym lift lift weights eat well give it 6 months and you will be a different person or one year or two years right so it's something you can all work on yourselves i would just say that introspect spend some time understanding yourself understand understanding who you are what your strengths are what your weaknesses are where you feel that you're inadequate and then work on that give it time it it won't you won't change over a week's time give yourself 2 years in 2 years you'll be a totally transformed person if you are consistent in working on yourself so so that's what i would say so the main thing is you have value good value intrinsic value every human being has value on their own and everybody has strengths and weaknesses you got to work on your strengths and try to eliminate you can't eliminate all weaknesses but you can reduce them so that's what i would say <clears throat> uh shantanu ja says will india get a permanent seat in the un and have veto power how many years will it take according to you i simply don't care if india doesn't get gets or doesn't get a permanent seat in the un or has veto power the thing is this see the un security council permanent members there are five of them and that situation represents the, the way the world was in 1945 almost a century ago so this it reflects an outdated obsolete world order okay my point is this i simply don't care whether we get this un permanent seat or not because if we rise it may become strong enough then it won't matter whether we have a seat or not because our strength itself will be such that this veto power won't matter we'll have a de facto veto power in the world if we are strong enough if we become a 20 trillion dollar economy a 25 trillion dollar economy um india eventually if we play our cards right we're going to be the largest economy in the world in this century when you are the largest economy in the world we have you going to have a military that is proportional to that strength and then you have a veto whether you whether people give you a veto or not you have it on your own so my point is forget about stop begging for the un permanent uh, the seat in the un security council stop lobbying for it stop 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 craving for it work on yourself like i said that is you got to identify your strengths and weaknesses we have tremendous potential in india we can rise to to unimaginable levels if you all work together so that's what we need to focus on give it some time the world is yours and this won't matter anymore okay <clears throat> Okay, lots of other questions. Lots of other questions. Um. Uh, what else? Uh. Okay, let's see this. Indian rupee is falling day by day. Really? Is it? Can you explain how the value is decided? Is this a concern for India, or is it befitting us? uh let me go and uh, let us go to our friend mr gugal and look at the indian rupee okay inr to usd is it falling really let's see this inr to usd um what about 5 years it's not really falling continuously but yeah you could say that yeah over time it has fallen it has fallen over time so how does this happen see in a free floating market the the uh, it all depends on the 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 demand that you have obviously when you have the us dollar the us dollar is a 
paper currency it's a fiat currency it's something that uh, is the world's reserve currency and it can be manipulated by the americans uh, at will uh, so yeah this is a complex topic and i'm not quite an expert in economics but i would say i would say that there are lots of things india can do to strengthen the 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 indian currency one one of the ways is to buy up more gold the other way is to increase your gdp the output there are lots of things we can do uh, i don't think this is overall a matter of great concern and unless you the, the the rupee falls precipitously which would indicate a serious systemic problem for example pakistani rupee to usd you will see that pakistani rupee so that is a total disaster you can see it's it's fallen pakistan rupee to inr i mean even that if you see you can see how how badly it's fallen and the the fall begins <laughs> uh sometime in 2016 2017 so you know these are complex things but i don't see this as a matter of concern this is a long term game and eventually the indian rupee see the indian rupee will, will do well what what the americans are doing is they at any given point in time if they feel that they need to manipulate the global economy in a certain way they will print a few trillion trillion dollars here and there just just invent money out of thin air in your computers that's what the americans do and because their currency is the reserve currency they are, they have the power to do it eventually it won't be that way uh, the world is now kind of tired of this situation and the process of de-dollarization may actually happen in the next 10 20 years so Okay. Aryan Shah says, "Yeah, let's talk about aliens. <laughs> uh what do you think about alien bodies found in Mexico?" Well, look. There's this claim, okay, that alien uh, mummies have been found in Mexico. And the 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 I don't know who it was, but some university in Mexico and so on, they came out with this claim, they put out some videos and some some images and all that, okay? So that's a claim. They have made a claim. now here's the scientific process when someone makes a claim that claim has to be independently verified so another team of scientists or maybe multiple team of teams of scientists who are unrelated and unconnected with the people making the claim these other teams of scientists should be given the same information the same data the same evidence and they should be asked to examine it independently and give their own scientific opinion based on scientific testing and evidence whether these are actual alien artifacts or whether these are fabrications so that is called peer review the proper way of doing peer review you know independent peer review that's not happened so if so when you make a claim but you don't allow anyone to either prove it or 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 debunk it that's just a claim and that cannot be taken as 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 gospel truth it cannot be taken as uh, proven right uh so that's 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 my perspective on this what what do i think i think somebody has made a claim but we we don't know if that claim is true is a genuine claim or whether it is a fabrication i i would say it's more likely it's a fabrication given the entire history of these claims of alien visitations and all that till today nobody has been able to prove with beyond you know give incontrovertible proof of any alien presence on this planet not a single one i mean people give you photographs people give you videos 
but it's typically grainy photographs taken by one person or or blurry videos taken by one person okay why doesn't it ever happen that there is this alien phenomenon that's a ufo or whatever that happens in mumbai and like five 50000 people see it at the same time and they all take they take out their phones and, and capture it that's genuine because 50000 people saw it at the same time or why doesn't it happen over tokyo or mexico city why is it always some random isolated place where one person takes a picture so you know that that that's why why i am very skeptical about these things so what do i think about these alien bodies this claim i i am very skeptical okay they if it is genuinely the, the case they found something they should make it this the, these artifacts and this ev- evidence available to teams of scientists from across the world let five different teams independent teams of scientists come and examine the evidence and do whatever tests they want to do and then give their own report of what they think this is based on empirical evidence that's not happening and that's why i'm very skeptical when will india have a great leader who will uni- unite the subcontinent maybe it is going to happen sooner rather than later okay we may be going in the direction where such leaders will such leaders may already be there they may actually even be known to people but uh, that they will know how good of a leader or not they are only when they actually come to power but i think we are going in that direction uh indians are becoming more and more aware of history indians are becoming more and more aware mm-hmm. of the great history of indian civilization there is more and more pride that is slowly awakening among indians of all across india and uh, uh, when this happens you know the quality of leadership goes up and and leaders also have to uh, you know justify when a leader comes to power they also have to live up to the expectations of the people so i think it's going to happen sooner rather than later that you will have a great leader who may unify the subcontinent i will not give in time frames and all because who knows i'm not i'm not nostradamus but yeah you know you know there are these geopolitical experts who make predictions and then they go on twitter and everywhere and say the see i predicted this i predicted that i don't do predictions i do analysis so <laughs> okay uh uh anik says why is there no update on the russia ukraine conflict nothing new is happening over there is this a sign of major attack or operation by russia coming up like i said this is a conflict that's meandering and now the west seems to be losing interest in ukraine uh, ukraine was always a disposable asset for them you know it's like a pawn sacrifice on the chessboard uh, zelensky is another disposable minion for them and uh, look i think right now the the amount of western aid that's flowing into ukraine is now slowing down to a trickle whether it is money whether it is arms whether it is ammunition and when the ammunition runs out then how do you fight how do you fight a war so so that's what's happening nothing much is happening there the russians are not trying to do any major escalation of the war they just trying to wait this out and they just want to wait until ukraine has nothing nothing left no arms no ammunition no soldiers yeah that's what the russians are waiting for they are waiting for ukraine to fall into their lap when why go and fight a terrible battles when you can just wait for 2 3 years and everything will will fall into your lap the way you want it so that is what's happening right now there's no major attack or operation that i see coming out obviously i can be completely wrong and mr putin may may prove me completely wrong and make me look like a fool but i 
from from where things are today i don't see any major russian operation coming up and maybe it's very stupid to say this because tomorrow something may come up but let's see <laughs> right okay um okay where are we um so once again war between russia and ukraine will it end by the end of this year who knows who knows look we are already in october october is ending now but we have got two months left for the for 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 this year i don't think it's going to most likely it won't end by the end of this year most likely it could end next year it could take three months it could take three years who knows right the way things go but when certain specific conditions are uh when when certain conditions become true when certain specific conditions are satisfied the russians will will move in until then they will not try to risk any major escalation that's what i would say and what conditions are these that the ukrainians run out of ammunition then you may have guns and all that you don't have bullets and what do you do so the russians can just walk in then right so that sort of thing you win without fighting ideally obviously there's been a lot of fighting the past two years but going forward they want to minimize the fighting and and take things to take the country without with minimal fighting okay um yeah ayush Qatar has wrongfully imprisoned our soldiers. How to deal with them? I I spoke about this in depth in the beginning of this thing. So once this <laughs> is over, you can uh, rewatch that. Yeah, I spoke about that. Can you elaborate on Sri Sri Nehruji's rejection of Nepal rejoining India? So yeah, um, in the 1950s, the King of Nepal, King Tribhuvan, wanted Nepal to rejoin India. then become an indian state and mr nehru so he rejected this 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 proposal right and it's not me claiming this it is former president pranab mukherjee has written about this in his book by the way okay check it out check out the book there's plenty of evidence that this actually happened so what do i say i don't know i, I, I simply don't understand what mr nehru was trying to do okay with all his decisions giving away to what 80% of the indus rivers waters to pakistan allowing allowing supplying rice to the chinese soldiers who were starving in their attempt to to invade and conquer tibet he supplied rice to them okay not taking any action when the chinese built a road through aksai chin i mean i don't know what mr nehru was doing i mean the, the list just goes on and on and on and on giving up gwadar he was given gwadar for free by the sultan of oman he said no we don't want it i mean giving up a significant portion of the kingdom of manipur to the burmese for no reason whatsoever as if it is his own personal uh, family property giving away the coco islands to burma the list goes on i mean oh. so i don't know i mean as as the leader of of a country you have one job your job is to serve the nation and its people and ensure the long term prosperity every action that you take should should contribute to strengthening the nation and serving the nation's interests with, with mr nehru every action that he took worked in the opposite way it hurt india it harmed india long term i mean he went to the un and he prevented the indian army from retaking pok if he had waited another week india the indian army would have taken pok back and mr nehru said no stop 
So and 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 that the consequences of that that decision, we are still dealing with those consequences today. So I just don't know. I I don't. Know. Somebody should perhaps psychoanalyze Mr. Nehru based on all the information that's available in the public domain. But I I, I just don't know why he did this thing. Okay, I simply don't know. I simply don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't compute. That's not what a leader is supposed to do, unless who knows what. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, prostration is is real. Is dirham is a real? Is yuan is ruble? <laughs> uh, uh, Doctor S. J. Doctor Jashankar Supremacy raises a very good question here. Yes, ma'am. How come patriotic Indian billionaires fund left-wing universities? Harvard University, for example. You have Indian billionaires who give significant donations to these universities and these universities then use that money to fund anti-India narratives, anti-India research, Hindu-phobic research. Okay? And there are these private universities in India that are funded by Indian billionaires. And if you see the kind of goddamn research is being done there, all anti-India narratives, Hindu-phobic narratives. Okay? So then the question really, the real question is, are these Indian billionaires patriotic or are they anti-nationals? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Yeah? So it, it is an in, indisputable fact that these billionaires fund these universities. Everyone knows this. It's out there in the public domain. Anyone can look it up. But then the, the, the only question is, what is the purpose and why are they doing it? Are they truly patriotic or are they anti-nationals? I, I leave the answer to you, sir, to you all. I, le I leave that answer to you. You are all wise enough to, to answer it. Let me know in the comments. Let, let me, let me, sorry, what is this? Uh, let me know in, in, in the live chat. What do you think? Thoughts on Jordan Peterson? Ah, I may. <laughs> uh, right, Jordan Peterson. Uh, what do I think of him? A Christian fundamentalist, Christian supremacist, white supremacist. That's what I think of him. Um, okay, we have gone way past two hours, which is something we typically do. Uh, so with that done, let's take maybe one or two more questions. The World Economic Forum wants to destroy the diversity of humans rather than protecting every last nationality. You know what makes the world beautiful? Diversity is what makes the world beautiful. If you go travel across the world and you see people who wear the same clothes, who eat the same food and speak the same language and worship the same religion and watch the same TV shows, and eat the same food, then what's what's the point of traveling? It's, everything becomes the same. Dull, monotonous uniform. A monoculture. What makes the world beautiful is this diversity of culture, diversity of ways of life, diversity of clothing, diversity of cuisine, diversity of languages, diversity of religions, diversities of point of view. That's what makes the world beautiful. And, and these there are these forces in the world that want to destroy this diversity. So yeah, Diversity is what makes the world beautiful and interesting. And we should cherish that and preserve that. Um, okay. Um, let's take one last question. One last question. Um, 
views on yajnadevam indus valley script decipherment um yeah maybe i should get him on the podcast and have him explain it in detail which will also uh help me understand this better so yeah let me do that yep um thoughts on current india visit of mahdi hasan so this mahdi hasan is a hindu phobe okay he thinks that uh, hindus are animals he has made very very crude very very uh, unacceptable statements in the past okay then he has been invited to india to mumbai for the tata lit fest if i'm not mistaken so this this question asked by uh, dr jayshankar supremacy that lady right uh, about indian billionaires funding left wing universities well here you have the tatas an indian billionaire group who are funding the visit of an anti india guy to india so what does it tell you about the tatas what does it tell you about the tatas right are they patriots or are they internationals i'm not saying anything i'm asking a question please let me know what you think okay <laughs> uh ishwarya tripathi says it's my birthday happy birthday happy birthday fantastic bobby epen says two state three states two states one state solution of current situation i do not even know what to say uh two states seems to make sense but then the the point of the palestinian movement is from the river to the sea they want palestine from the river to the sea okay what do they mean by that let me explain what they mean by that river to the sea one second let me uh, bring the map back on okay the palestinians want palestine from the river to the sea so is that a two state solution three state solution one state solution which river are they talking about they're talking about the river jordan okay the west bank is the west bank of the river jordan where is the river one second uh yeah where is the jordan river so this is the jordan river right from the river to the sea they want palestine from this from this point all the way to the sea which means they want the eradication and the destruction of the nation state of israel all of this they want it to be israel so who are the <laughs> the palestinians are the arabs aren't they aren't there enough arab countries in the world do the jews not deserve a single country so i don't know so let's say we go for a two state solution we create a separate palestine separate israel will the palestinians be happy with that it's 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 kind of asking yourselves okay hypothetically in the 1990s if the indian government had given away kashmir to pakistan would that have solved the india pakistan problem no pakistan will never be satisfied until they destroy the whole of india the solution is the destruction of pakistan right so india pakistan was a two state solution this this but you still have this conflict and the conflict will exist as long as pakistan exists so we are very clear now in india what the what the solution is it's the disintegration of pakistan hopefully peacefully yeah now so so i don't know <laughs> what's the solution to the to, to the middle east thing the israel palestine thing a fair solution would be a two state solution obviously yeah give some land to the palestinians live there you west bank gaza whatever it is and live the let the let the, let the jews live in peace in the other part of the region i mean it, it is their ancestral homeland judea right but yeah i don't think the palestinians will be quite happy with that they want the destruction of israel so it, this is a, i don't see i don't know what the solution is yeah i don't know what the solution is right now 
ओके 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 विद दैट सेड लेट अस एंड टुडेस थिंग टुडेस लाइव स्ट्रीम आस्क अभिजीत 169 इट्स बीन 2 आवर्स 11 मिनट्स एंड काउंटिंग थैंक यू सो मच फॉर ऑल ऑफ योर क्वेश्चंस ऑब्वियसली देयर आर सो मेनी क्वेश्चंस आई कुड नॉट टेक सो आई अपोलॉजाइज टू दोस ऑफ यू हुज क्वेश्चंस आई कुड नॉट टेक आई अपोलॉजाइज टू दोस दोस ऑफ यू आस्क क्वेश्चंस इन द इन द कमेंट्स एंड आई कुड नॉट टेक देम बट आई विल कीप ऑन डूइंग दिस एंड या वी विल कंटिन्यू दिस फॉर द फोरसीएबल फ्यूचर द आस्क अभिजीत शो so thank you very much for your viewership for your support for everything and i will see you as soon as i possibly can in the next episode thank you take care bye bye see you see you soon